Welcome to CYC Podcast Discussions on Child and Youth Care, episode number 151. I'm Wolfgang Vachon. Every now and then, people email me to suggest a podcast topic. A practice I encourage, by the way, so if you have any ideas, please reach out to me. Today's conversation is one such situation. Marley Pinazar is a CYC from Toronto who now works in Nunavik, northern Quebec. The history of people working in cultures other than the ones they come from is a burdened history, to, to put it far too mildly. This burden is amplified when we're speaking about Indigenous communities. Marley has thought a lot about this and reached out to me to share her thoughts, her experiences, and learnings regarding working across cultures in a caring profession, such as child and youth care. Welcome, Marley, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Wolfgang. Oh, I'm excited. Uh, just to give our conversation a little bit of context, I, I maybe you could tell us what you are doing up in Nuvik. So, um, as maybe Ontarians, there's a cross-provincial uh, identity, so we'll have to uh, talk about that. Um, so, in Ontario, I'm a child and youth care practitioner, but in uh, Quebec, uh, they haven't uh, gone through that identity. Uh, just yet. So um, in Quebec right now, in the northern area, I'm considered a student support professional. So I do work in a small community, well actually mid-sized, I would say about 800, 900 people, um, and it is an isolated community named Kangasiouac, uh, Quebec. Um, so I'm there. I'm uh, student support and I consult, I provide early intervention, I provide uh, any sort of social, emotional, and mental health support from children from kindergarten to secondary five um, in Quebec, which is equivalent to about grade 11 in Ontario. And so my age range is quite big. And um, I'm also working with three different languages, Anutitut, uh, French, and English. So it's a very unique place in which students are able to pick their language of choice, um, which, you know, definitely has its um, adventures on my end and uh, when it comes to intervention. But, yes, that's what I do. One side is students, and then the other side is consulting with teachers who um, just need extra support uh, with their students and a way to maybe reflect on their own practices. So I'm there doing that. So you're from Toronto, and yeah. this might be an obvious question for, for some people, but why fly somebody up from Toronto to do this work? Why not hire somebody from that local community? It's a really good question, um, and to be honest with you, I really struggle with it still to this day, um, but the way I'm, I've been told, I guess, is it's about more of the, um, maybe the educational uh, requirements of this job. What happened was, just to give a context about my job, about two years ago, well, actually now three, 2015, there was a huge suicide crisis that happened in Kujwak. Um, so that's the capital of uh, Nunavik. And so there was a huge suicide crisis, and one of the criticisms that was being 
said was there wasn't enough mental health support um, in our communities, in the isolated communities. So um, one of the biggest questions was how are we going to fulfill that um, obligation for, our, for the region, for Nunavik as a whole. So I guess when they hired people from the south, they had this expectation that these uh, workers would handle more of the at-risk um, cases. So, you know, at risk of suicide, at risk of uh, dropping out, um, more, of the, more of the high complex cases. Now, don't get me wrong, each community does have a local student counselor, and uh, a, stu a local student counselor is um, in Nook, and so they are local, they are, um, they are Indigenous, obviously, but Sadly, the way I guess the system has been going on, they don't have the, unfortunately, they haven't been provided the training to deal with the complex cases. Now, obviously, I hope that changes um, as the years go on and that we advocate more educational and training and more schools surrounding um, uh, ability to teach and educate even local student counselors on dealing with uh, high-risk suicide and trauma and grief. But I, my assumption at least is that they needed someone to alleviate from the South, alleviate uh, some of those issues that are not truly connected to the community um, as a whole. Uh, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but uh, it does when you're living there and you're working there and all your family, half of the community is your family, those high complex cases become uh, very, very hard to work with as a, a local counselor. And so what you're saying is sometimes having someone from outside can add something that perhaps those who are um, fully immersed in, in that community, A, may not... Um, yeah, it, it might add something that, that doesn't exist. And, and then B, there's just the realities of, of the education system and in the northern communities and yeah. in Canada. There people, you know, many people haven't had post-secondary because of a whole number of systemic structural reasons. Exactly, which I'll get into more in geographical, like the geographical privilege of what what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Well, let's jump there. What what um, what do you mean by geographical privilege? It's a term that I was unfamiliar with. Okay, so basically, when we look at geographical privilege, I you know we've heard many times about race privilege, cultural privilege. Uh, there's an aspect of there's a broad range of different types of privileges. Now, when I refer to geographical privilege, it's understanding um, where you are, reflecting on the context of where you are, and also how it might play a role um, within your work and within your own within your work and the interactions you have with um, individuals, family, young people. Um, so, understanding the way of living. Understanding the idea that, you know, you come from a certain area and depending on how you look at services, for example, can really question what 
advantage a certain geographical location has over the other. And, you know, it begs questions of, you know, um, for example, uh, let's, I'm going to take an example, Please. okay, that has been definitely a very big uh, criticism over the couple of years I've been there. But let's say we look at um, the example of healthcare, mm-hmm. okay, and we take mental health services. So uh, as, and again, I proclaim that I'm not a psychologist, I am a child and youth care practitioner, so obviously our practice is limited to certain things. Now, one of my job is to refer out. So if I'm referring a student and we're having conversations and I'm having conversations with this community social worker, um, the student might be, let's say, a candidate for seeing the child psychiatrist, which does exist up north. However, in a northern isolated community, a child psychiatrist only comes three times a year. Um, So that's, and especially if we're looking at, you know, mental health complex cases like depression or at risk of suicide, um, many of the students I deal with have grief, uh, past traumas. Um, So having a psychiatrist come three times a week Three, sorry, three times a year at maybe three days out of that time they are there, is, it's not a lot. It's not the best support. So when you look at accessibility and you look at geographical privilege, um, understanding the advantage of, let's say, living in the South is that I can go and see a psychiatrist anytime I want. I just go to my family doctor. I say, I want to be referred, I'm having, you know, um, I'm having depressive thoughts, um, I would like to get referred to a psychiatrist, please. Um, and then, you know, you have the prescription that's being made, you have the referral being made, for example. And then, you know, you, you might get called, let's say, a few weeks later by the psychiatrist to make an appointment. Now, in the North, it's quite different. I mean, as you know, if I'm, if I'm living in an isolated community, accessibility is non-existent. So a, a psychiatrist just can't come any time they feel like. Um, it is planned months in advance. So what it might look like, for example, is, hey, Marley, um, I need help. I'm having really depressive thoughts. Um, you know, I th- I'm thinking about really seeing someone. Okay. Well, let me get you on the list for the child psychiatry list, okay, Dr. Um, Dr. X. So he sh- they go, okay. So then I usually make the call to the nursing station, which is the main um, nursing station that uh, many go for, for even like simple checkups, uh, you know, medical, just simple because there's no doctor in town. It's uh, registered nurses. And so I called them and I said, when's the psychiatrist coming in town? Well, well, Marley, sometimes I would get the answer of, well, maybe in another three months. So what are we doing between now, in my head, what are we doing between now and three months until the psychiatrist comes, right? And so oftentimes when we think about geographical privilege, you know, I've reflected in my own life in my own world as a southerner accessibility to many services especially mental health services that 
Yes, waiting time is a lot. I know we talk about that down south, that some organizations have a lot of waiting time. But at the same time, there's options to be said. And even through, I, I, I live in York Region, right? Growing up in York Region, I was able to um, say, okay, that organization, that organization, that organization, I could at least check. But in the north, you have no option. So geographically, I understood and reflecting on that, that was a huge advantage on my end growing up. Uh, but the thing is, though, this is where cultural safety comes in. And I think when we talk about the whole cultural safety within geographical profiling is that when people come up here from the south and they understand that maybe the healthcare system is not accessible up north, there's this cast of judgment that, oh, well, if all the healthcare services are down in Montreal, because that's the main hub for uh, Inuit who live up north and they need to get ex like uh, extended services, then why are they living up north? They know that there's a lack of accessibility. Why don't they move themselves to the south and to the big city so that they can get the help? And, and have you heard these sorts of comments? Yes, I have. And it's through converse. Unfortunately, it's those conversations I hear when I'm, you know, let's say talking about where I work, and they're like, well, I don't get it, you know, and I don't get it, Marley. How come, you know, the urban lifestyle? They could easily take their bags and just go down south and live in Montreal. Right, because we know that that's a raging success for people to move to the city yeah, all the time. Yeah, exactly. And and so you, you you introduced this term cultural safety, and I, and I want to talk about that a, a little bit. And there's there's lots of these different frameworks around, uh, you know, there's cultural competency, there's cultural humility, there's cultural safety, you know, amongst many others. What is it about cultural safety that's different from some of these other structures, and why why do you think that's a particularly effective? one for for you and for others? So I, I have to, I, I want to put it out there that cultural competency, cultural humility, cultural safety, I was looking at it and I've, I was doing my own research and I said to myself, well, it's like a process of reflection, I said. So I'll give you an example. So you have cultural competency. So I feel like that's the base of reflection. So, and an example was before I even got hired, I came in and I said, okay, where is Nunavik? Mm. Because as an Ontarian, I didn't know what, where Nunavik was. I only knew where Nunavut was, mm -hmm. but I never heard that Quebec had their Arctic region. So um, three years ago, I'm searching that. I'm trying to be, let's say, quote-unquote, competent about the area, about the region, about the people. Okay, who lives there? Okay, we know Inuit lives there. Okay, I researched that. But... What I realize is cultural competency only has its superficial um, limit, and that is to, you know, on the bare minimal, you've researched, you know, some of the histories, their traditions, um, their lifestyle. Now, that being said, that's still great. You know, you, you've gotten the opportunity to research. However, it doesn't really go deep into the whole reflective piece. So being competent, I feel, of any culture is a, in my belief, it's, 
it's naive. I mean, as someone who has not grown up into the culture, automatically you won't know everything. And so competency gives the word and this expectation on the CYC that you need to be competent in order to be a good practitioner. You need to understand everything about the culture, which I beg to differ. And so as we move on, we go into humility. And so the second step of reflection is the idea that understanding, I don't know everything, but I want to learn. I want to learn, and I want to question. And so humility really looks at more of the introspection. It's the idea that, you know what, I don't know why parents, um, you know, when I first came in, and, for example, one of the biggest, uh, let's say, culture shocks for me when I went into a community, when I went up north, because culture shock is a very normal phenomenon that, you know, I think many CYCs, doesn't matter up north or across different cultures, but it may happen, and it may not happen immediately, but may happen at a later time. So I was a little bit shocked at maybe a certain parental um, way of doing um, I remember um, I saw a five-year-old, five, six-year-old walking in the middle of the night at 11 o'clock. And then I, I just, uh, oh, I stood back and I, I just was like, oh, my goodness, uh, where's the parents? So that was my first question. That mm-hmm. was my first mm-hmm. bias. That was my first judgment. But then I, you know, through talking, through reflecting, through even questioning, um, talking to other, talking to elders, talking to people, talking to, you know, the local community, they say, you know, Marley, at the end of the day, you know, traditions and histories, we've, you know, we've walked through the land, um, you know, we've walked through so much, you know, worse things. We've gotten our five-year-old, six-year-old to get us um, back then. Uh, water, and it was through a blizzard, you know, so you would hear stories like that, and so you're like, hmm, interesting, but it's, humility is understanding that you will not know, but it's about learning with each other, it's about co-learning. Now, the problem I find with humility, one of the limits there, is it really only talks about you, Mm. you as a worker, Mm. you as a practitioner, and As much as that's very good practice, as we hear from reflective practice, at the same time, I feel like it's not a dialogue. So here we go, my third level of reflection, cultural safety. And why I love cultural safety and why it's maybe the level that I find is the reachable level is when you could start having a dialogue with your young person. So I'll give you an example. Obviously, I come from a non-hunting gathering society. I don't hunt to get my food. But living up north, one of the biggest practices um, on the weekends would be hunting. And so, you know, I would have a student come in to, you know, come in and say, uh, hey, Marley, how's it going? Hey, how's your weekend? Oh, yeah, like I, I got, guess what? What? I got my first fox. Cool. <laughs> so there we go. I, I don't know what that feels like. I really, and to be honest, I will never know what that feels like. But he's safe enough. This student is safe enough to tell me what his day-to-day interactions, his life is. He knows that I don't, I've never hunted. He knows I'm not a hunter. 
but he shares those moments with me. And so when we talk about cultural safety, we talk about this idea of looking at our shared values, shared respect, and also shared traditions, that I can talk about my world and you can talk about your world, and it's safe. And what what makes it safe? Like I I'm, I struggle a little bit around this idea of of, of mm-hmm. safety, and particularly when we talk about you, you know, for example, non Indigenous people working in Indigenous cultures, or or Southerners working in the North. I mean, the the history is not a, a, a history of safety at all. So, you know, this no. this sense of of Dialogue. I absolutely. I'm with you. Crucial. Mm-hmm. I, I'm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm. I'm still a little unclear where what makes that that safe as opposed to, you know. Okay, now I'm going to understand this culture, and I'm not at all proposing that this is what you're doing. However, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, I now understand this culture, and now I can colonize more effectively, or now I can uh, convert, or or now I can change this culture because I understand in the inner workings of the culture. Where does the safety exist? So it's a very good question. And this is where, and I think understanding, you know, when I was building my toolkit, right, because I don't want to be fake. I'm not here to come in and change anything, to be honest. That's not my intention at all. But what safety means is just this is based on my experience. So, you know, working for three years, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the children that, you know, I see have faced a lot of, let's say, I, cultural identity. I think there's this assumption that when we look at cultural identity in Indigenous communities, we think they have it all sorted out. Mm. That, okay, I'm Mohawk, I'm Algonquin, I'm Inuit. But that's, it's actually not the case, I'm finding, through my work up north. And again, I'm, I would like to put the disclaimer that I am working in one context. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. people's, um, as child and youth care practitioners working for different Indigenous communities might have a different experience. I'm sharing mine in the context of uh, North, um, in Kangasiuak. And so when you talk about, when I talk to youth and they're like, Marley, I don't know what, like, Part of me says I'm Inuit. Part of me says I'm white. Part of me doesn't like to sew. Part of me doesn't like to um, hunt. But part of me really enjoys eating country food. So for me, the safety of all of this is that you're coming to, you know, you're coming. It doesn't have to be even me. Even the discussions with, like, a teacher or a local student counselor. It's the idea that you can feel safe enough to express and to be heard. You can be free of non-judgment attitude where, you know, obviously in the past 1950s and 60s, you know, you had government officials forcing Inuit to settle, forcing Inuit to think in a different way, forcing language out of their system. Um, I've met many elders who who expressed to me that they were, you know, beaten up because they were not speaking Anuttitut. But I look at present-day safety, and it's the ability to, you know, if you can't, like, yes, I'm English, I can't speak Anuttitut, but, you know, I will find someone for you. 
that will, you know, translate to me or I will find someone for you to just have that conversation with in your maternal language. So the safety aspect is, is that I'm not here to change you, but I'm also I'm here to just make sure that you feel safe in what you say and that nothing is being judged and that I care and that there's this relation, it's a relational between two people. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to change you, and you're not here to change me. And that was one of the biggest things in my toolkit, was understand your own self-identity as a practitioner. Because if you're coming up, your intentions are coming up, and you're saying to yourself, you know, I really need to change the way they're doing things. It's just, it doesn't make sense. Then you really need to start reflecting on your intentions. But if you're going up with, again, a cultural, and, I, and I, I was talking about the cultural competency, humility, and the safety, is that it all comes together in different levels, is that you understand and you're like, I don't know anything, but I want to learn. I want to learn with you. I want to see what's going on. That's, you know, and if we think about it, it's the basic traits of a child and youth care practitioner, understanding, active listening, relational care. It's the basic traits of what makes us a profession. So uh, it doesn't make us special for doing those things. Doesn't you know? Doesn't matter you know where we are. But it's also we're using those even basic traits to question and to reflect and to supply that idea of okay, you're in my room. I don't want to make you nervous. I don't want to judge you. And you know, you have your beliefs. I have my beliefs. Let's talk. Let's. You know, let's talk about those things. But I'm not here to t- uh, change you at all. That's not my intention. This idea of, of not changing is, is, is a fascinating one for us to uh, grapple with as CYCs because just as the, mm-hmm. the history of colonialization has been about changing and, and you talked about people saying, well, why don't people just move to the city, you know, which is about change. Yes. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. much of the history of child and youth care has been about change, right? We're going to change this child. We're going to change their behavior. We're going to change their action, right? That this isn't, isn't appropriate. And, and so one of the things that, you know, as you talk about cultural safety, it really starts to challenge a lot of the long-held precious beliefs about child and youth care, social services in general, uh, about mm-hmm. this change agenda. And I, and I wonder if, if you've thought about the, the larger implications of cultural safety outside of, you know, overtly obvious examples such as you're talking about to to you know me as a as a, a city-based practitioner every time I work with a, a new person they come from a different culture than me even if we're both males even if we're both white even if we're both cisgender we still come from different cultures and what mm-hmm. might be how might we use this cultural safety framework in other areas of child and youth care? Have you thought about that much? You know it's I actually thought more about um, my personal life mm. and understanding that because in my personal life, I grew up 
like I, and again, this goes back to privilege. It goes back to power, and it goes back to again the second level of what I talked about—the reflective piece of cultural humility. Is I understand the power, I understand systematic oppression, but I also understand on my end, I felt like I came from, in a way, an advantage because I grew up in a, a visible minority, as a visible minority, like being mixed cultural. I am Canadian, but. I do identify myself as too Iranian and uh, as well. And as a mixed female, I often struggled with my own culture. And again, it's not for CYC practitioners who come into any sort of cultural context. It's so important to understand your own privilege, mm. you know. And, mm-hmm. and again, I only talk about geographical, but what makes it safe for your students is also understanding that you've done the work yourself, Mm, mm. that you came up understanding who you are and that you're okay with who you are and your limitations. And you're okay with that. And obviously as I talk more about, you know, toolkits of child and youth care and what CYCs can use when working in different cultures, one of which is understanding yourself. And I'll give you an example from my toolkit, self-identity. I understand I'm not Indigenous, and I will never proclaim I am. Um, I have my limitations. I have, you know, what I can and cannot do. And as a self-identity, it's important because you understand what is, even when we look at interventions and we look at preventative activities, I had, so I have a story and basically what happened was is that it's been t- it was two years at that point I was working up north. And at that point, you know, I am understanding a lot as a practitioner that I have my limitations. There's things I can't do. Are you okay with that, Marley? Yes, I am. And one, one example I'm going to give you. I was sitting in my office and I was doing some stuff, and one of... Um, the Inuit teachers come up to me, and she goes, Marley, um, I have a request for you. I said, sure, what is it? She goes, do you think it would be a good idea for you to teach self-esteem to the girls? So I paused, and I said, I can't. Mm. I, I I don't want to. And then she says, oh, she was called back because you know I do a you know I do a lot for the you know I do a lot for the school I've done a lot of preventive but self esteem I will not touch mm. and she goes why and she was shocked too a little I, and I felt the, the disappointment so I was like I'm not Inuit mm. I'm not I don't know what it's like to have what these girls are going through self esteem I mean I understand what self esteem is but on a cultural on a cultural context I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe coming in and talking about self-esteem. So she looks at me and she goes, so what do we do? And I said, well, why don't we talk to an elder? Why don't we talk to um, maybe a young Anuk woman to talk about those issues? But I don't feel comfortable and I don't feel safe doing so. So safety can be obviously in your own practice and understanding that you have your limits and understanding that you might be asked even from another culture 
to do stuff that you're just not comfortable with because, again, you've done the work. You've done your, your work and you understand you're not this, but you, it doesn't mean it's not impossible to provide in certain ways, like trying to get somebody who is, let's say, an Anuk female into the classroom and talking to that person and to reach out to those connections. That understanding that cultural safety in a respect of your own self, of your own practice, if you don't understand it, if you don't know and you don't feel comfortable, I look at that as safety. You're not safe. You're not safe to, you know, do these activities. You're not safe to have, you know, um, it's not, you don't feel comfortable. You don't feel, you feel this urge to say, you know, this inner feeling of, um, you know, it's a limitation and I will not go past my limitation for this. So those are just some of the things I look at safety as, cultural safety, because if we look at cultural safety as a dialogue between two people, sure, we could have a one-to-one -one conversation and we could have our laughs and then we could have our questions. But now you're expecting me to teach cultural, um, to teach self-esteem in the classroom. That's a whole new world. Mm -hmm. I will not touch that, and mm -hmm. I told that person. Mm -hmm. I don't feel safe doing that. So it's a different sort of intimacy when you do one-to-one -one versus presentations, obviously, but that's just an example of understanding your own work and your own self-identity and through your practices. Indeed. I, you know, one of the things that, you know, as we move towards closing, one of the things that, you, you know, really becomes apparent is your reflexive practice is your, um, mm -hmm. you know, before we started this interview, I, you know, I asked you, you know, do you mind talking about ethnicity and your own ethnicity and, you know, how do you identify? And, and you were um, really able to, um, which isn't always the case, I find when I ask people, you know, that question, you were, you were really, really able to articulate and, and name and, and contextualize uh, who you are as it relates to your own history, your own culture, you know, going back multiple, multiple generations and, and your, your active engagement and your, your, your thinking and all of those things, I think models for, for all of us, what a, uh, you know, how to be a, a, an engaged practitioner working towards cultural safety, acknowledging your own humility and, and mm -hmm. recognizing the limitations of 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 a, a competency framework. So, as we as we move towards closing, is there any final thoughts you have that we? There's lots we didn't cover, <laughs> like your um, like your toolkit uh, the, uh, criteria and, and things like that. Uh, is there anything else that we um, you want to touch on before we close today? Yeah, I think that. Um if we, I want to talk about relational care for a second mm -hmm. um, and relational practice because, you know, it's, uh, as you know, Wolfgang, it's a big buzzword in our field, relational care and relational practice. But, you know, I never believed in, I believed in it, never really instinctively practiced it until I moved up north, though. Mm. And I, I see the child and youth care practitioners that, I, if I knew a couple of years ago about relational care and 
really having the time to do so, I would have. I think it would have helped me much more. But never too late, I guess. And, you know, when I came up north and I started really looking into relational care and I started to read the works and um, researchers on relational care and practices, I now come to a conclusion that it should be an instinct an instinct trait in all of us, I think, when you check into work and when you check out to work, but also in your life as well. Mm. And so um, one thing I say to child and youth care practitioners is it's okay to self-doubt yourself and it's okay to not know and it's also okay to, you know, as we talk about um, humility, it's, it's, it's about how those questions are raised or your own biases and your own stereotypes. And when you don't reflect and you don't use those practices, those things are not exposed. And when you don't expose those things, it can be scary because you realize you're working with young people. And in some cases, sometimes you're working with young people who have been marginalized for decades. And Understand that if you don't do your own work and you don't do your own reflective practice, um, obviously I'm not saying you're a bad practitioner, but it really puts your work as a practitioner to a whole new level. Mm. Your 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 quality your quality care of children and youth, your dedication, your passion for them is just next higher. So what I say as my final words is, don't be afraid to question yourself, and it's okay to make mistakes, and it's okay to come back and just say, listen, I'm here, to, I'm here myself to look at my practice in a different way. And so I've grown up. Mm. I've grown up. I used to be an urban child and youth care practitioner. I've done that for many years. Now I'm here, different context. And so now I have, I have that context that I could say to myself, okay, what works, what didn't work, and then I could use that into wherever I am in my next my next work. But it's instinct. It's okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna use it. It's part of my routine now. It's like I get out. I sit there. I reflect. I I grab a coworker. I say, Hey, let's talk. Because if we don't talk as child and youth care practitioners, we also face our own mental health too. And it's about talking. And if we don't talk, we feel isolated. And for me. Being isolated mentally, I'm already physically isolated, mm-hmm. but mentally, that's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> and so that's what I really thought. I think, I think reflective practices really helped me. It helped me get out of my physical isolation, made me feel that I'm mentally there with everyone. And it's, for me, it was a part of self-care. Nice. So those are just my final words. Great um, final I words. Also, yeah, and I invite any, any child and youth care practitioner, if they have any questions about working up north, they're always looking for great, dedicated, passionate people. Mm. Um, just feel free to contact me. I'm always there for mobilizing the knowledge. Would you mind if I put your email on the, uh, the CYC podcast website? Would that be okay for, for you? For sure. Yeah, and then people can, yeah. can reach out for to sure. you, Marley. Um, thank you so, exactly. so they much. Can- yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me, and thank you, Wolfgang, for taking my email and you know really making it come to life. Oh, you're today. very welcome. It, I really it's, appreciate uh, it. it. You know, you you suggested this was a an important and under 
discussed topic on the podcast and I absolutely agree with you it's something we haven't talked about and it and it's crucial that we talk more about it and so I really appreciate that and and hopefully I'm able I'll be able to have some more conversations with it as we go forward thank you very very much for taking the time today Marley and I look forward to our next conversation whenever that might be all right sounds good have a great weekend thanks bye-bye